0: our first lesson today together from Psalm 46. Listen for God's word and wisdom to us today. God is our refuge and strength of very present help in trouble. Therefore, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city and shall not be moved. God will call when the morning dawns. The nations are in an uproar, the kingdoms, kingdoms totter, God speaks, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts. Come, behold the works of the Lord. God, on his force, ceases to the end of the earth. God breaks the bow, shatters the spear. God turns his shield to fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord has blessed not going to invite um, our children up, but invite us all to in, into this children, time with children, um, because uh, we are beginning the season of Lent. And there's something about this scripture passage from, from Psalm 46 that I find really intriguing. It's a song. It was meant to be sung, um, and, um, and it is a response that this person had after knowing the truth God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. This is not some sort of disconnected from life kind of statement. This person must have really experienced it and needed to sing about it. Which makes me think I wonder how you might, what stories you might connect with God is our, is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What stories would you connect? this this one sentence that shows how true this sentence is. I think that the author of this song must have gone on and looked at how God was at work in the world and he did it or she did it because we don't know who wrote it because as they say at the end of the passage be still and know that I am God. There's something about being still for a few minutes and paying attention to life, and seeing God in the midst of it, that must have allowed this person to finally say and sing, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. I wonder if stillness in some ways was a part of this person's um, practice of faith in life. And to that end, we'd like to invite you into some practice during the season of Lent. In fact, there's a whole page in our bulletin today on different kinds of practices. And the beauty of practices is that they do not promise you that you will ever reach the end, that you will ever fully and and completely master anything. But they invite you to practice in such a way that they open us up to what God is doing in the world so that we too can perhaps say god is a present our, our strength and refuge a very present help in times of trouble. And to that end, for our lenten season, we would love for you to join in a, a daily email reflection because as we know, we don't get that many emails during the day and but to actually make an intentional effort to look for an email from us and open it up and read some portion or all of it about what it means to be a local pilgrim. Um, we'd love for you to come and join us on Wednesday evenings and to sit in Centering Prayer together in a time of being still and letting God be God among us. Or to use um, to some of our, our faith formation studies around um, a spirit thinking about falling upward, a, a spirituality for two, the two halves of life, and what it means to not just live a life externally, but to let that faith life and who we are become our true home. And there's even a nice little journal that you can use on a daily basis as a part of the readings. Or to come on, on Wednesday nights and be a part of, one, uh, of the study that's going on on Thursday mornings and Sunday mornings, but to study the Gospel of Mark, which is the lectionary gospel for this year. And certainly to open ourselves up to how God is at work uh, through our 40 cans of Lent as we engage hunger in our community, or we listen deeply to what the One Great Hour Sharing offering is asking us to think about in relation to the hunger program or disaster assistance or the self-development of people that our denomination is very and deeply committed to. All of it are different practices for us that invite us to be still, to pay attention, and to see truly how God is our pres- as our help and strength, not just as a theory, but in who we are and what we do and who we are as a church and the good news that we share in this world. So let us pray. God, in this season of Lent, we pray that you will help us to find the practice that will open us up so that we may become more and more the people you want us to be. That we will follow where you lead us as a church, as individuals, and that together we will know your presence and proclaim it more, not just in the words that we say, but in who we are and what we do. May this be true for us in this season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Our second lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, the 18th chapter. Let us listen again for the word and wisdom of God. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child, whom he put among them and said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. On Wednesday this week, in the midst of a conversation totally unrelated to church, I happened to mention that I was going to an Ash Wednesday service later that day. Oh, said the other person, do you give something up for Lent? Now my conversation partner is not involved in church and would not identify herself as Christian, although she is certainly one of the growing segment in our country that call themselves spiritual but not religious. Like so many people today who have been raised on the margins of any particular faith tradition, her understanding of Christianity has been informed more by her experience of other people who call themselves Christian and the many ways that the Judeo-Christian message has been embedded in our American culture, rather than by first-hand experience in a church or reading the Bible. So I responded, no, uh, not really. For us Presbyterians, uh, Lent isn't about giving stuff up so much. It's not so much a season of penitence and self-deprivation, but an invitation to reflect on our lives and to grow in our relationship with God. As our Book of Common Worship explains, the season of Lent is a time for growth in faith through prayer, spiritual discipline, and self-examination in preparation for the celebration of the dying and rising of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we celebrate on Easter Sunday. Part of our Lenten experience is to take a good look at our lives and to notice what gets in the way of us being the people that God created and calls us to be. Lent invites us to clear out some of these obstacles so that we can focus on growing in our relationship with God and how we practice our faith on a daily basis. So I explained to my friend that although this might mean someone gives up caffeine or alcohol or social media for the season, more often it could be about making time and space in our lives for a a new or renewed spiritual practice like one of the ones Chip mentioned earlier. Of course, as soon as I said this to her, I realized that this year, we actually are asking everybody to give something up for Lent, and that something is fear. Why fear, you might ask? Let's go back to that question that the season of Lent asks us. What is keeping you, or keeping us, or keeping this world, from being what God created and calls us to be. When you look around the world today, what kinds of problems do you see? Hunger? War? Anger? Hate? Feelings that feel over of problems that feel out of control? Destruction, yeah, uh, greed, violence, oppression, injustice, income inequality, climate change, the list could go on and on, right? And when you think about the people that you know and love, what are some of the problems that they are facing? Illness, depression, maybe addiction, lack of meaning and purpose, financial insecurity, doesn't take much to figure to put to plug in some answers there, either. As I said in the e- weekly email, I believe that all of these problems, from the smallest to the biggest, share one thing in common. They are all rooted in some way in fear. Fear of not having enough, fear of being abandoned, fear of failure, fear of the unknown, fear of losing or being wrong, Fear of punishment, retribution, or violence. Fear of change. Fear of getting hurt. Fear of the other, the stranger, those who are different from me. Fear of being alone. Fear of losing control. Fear of not being liked or loved. Fear of sacrifice. What will I have to give up? Fear of death. What am I missing? So much of what we do and say as human beings, so many of the choices we make, the institutions and the nations we build, and the inventions and scientific breakthroughs and societies that we create are based not in the higher virtues of love, justice, peace, and the well-being of all life as much as we might like to hope they are, but on fear. What was originally intended to be an instinctual warning system for our protection and our good has become the primary motivation underlying much of what is wrong in the world today. This is nothing new. Fear has plagued humanity from the very beginning. As William Shakespeare once said, of all base passions, fear is the most accursed. And although I've never read the novel Dune or even seen the movie, I do know and have known since high school this famous line written by author Frank Herbert, fear is the mind killer, fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. From the Buddha who said over 2,500 years ago, the whole secret to existence is to have no fear, to FDR who a century ago said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, People have been warning us about fear and its negative effects on our lives for a long, long time. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, Fear defeats more people than any one thing in the world. This is why we are focusing on our fears for Lent this year and even giving them up so that we can be grounded more firmly in the good news of our faith. You can find it on the cover of your bulletin, where it will be every week. God's perfect love casts out fear. And so we can live our lives from the foundation not of our fears, but of our faith, and of God's perfect love. Today we begin with the fear of change. I'm sure you've all heard the joke or some variation of it, how many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Change? Who said anything about change? <laughs> For all of our love and, innovation and a love of innovation and progress, the latest technologies, the greatest advances in human knowledge and understanding, we human beings are surprisingly resistant to change, especially when it challenges our comfort and security, our ways of understanding and living in the world. And just like fear, change has always been a part of life. At this time of year, when many of us are working on our taxes, I'm reminded of the old saw. The only things you can count on in life are death and taxes. But even taxes are not nearly as certain as change is. This is because the world that we live in, the universe that God created, is in constant motion and undergoing change at every moment. Even the tallest mountains and the most solid, immovable rocks are being slowly acted upon and changed by the forces of nature and erosion. All around us, atoms are vibrating, cells are dividing and multiplying, living things are growing and changing, species and ecosystems are evolving, and and stars and solar systems are spinning. Some might even say that life is change, because in order to stay alive, we have to grow, we have to change. Those who are not growing, and therefore not changing, are essentially dying. And I would venture that our fear of death is even stronger than our fear of change, but we'll get to that in a few weeks. As the legendary yogi and spiritual leader B.K.S. Iyengar once said, change is not something we should fear. Rather, it is something we should welcome. For without change, nothing in this world would ever grow or blossom, and no one in this world would ever move forward to become the person they're meant to be. So why do you suppose we find change so threatening? What are we so afraid of? We don't have time this morning to fully explore the psychology of change or the ins and outs of change theory, but I think we can summarize it this way. Moving from one place to another, from one stage of development to the next, from one way of knowing and understanding and living to a new one requires us to let go of where we are and to leave something behind. And that something usually gives us a sense of comfort and security, of mastery and control over the circumstances of our lives. It's hard to give up that something that makes us feel secure, especially when we're not sure of what lies ahead. For example, for a baby to move from sitting to standing or from crawling to walking requires her to leave behind the comfort and mastery she enjoys and to take risks to stand up or take a step and then maybe lose her balance and fall down. A caterpillar must let go of being a caterpillar in order to become a butterfly. Or as Jesus himself said, Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The seed must give up being a seed in order to grow into a plant and bear fruit. Which brings us to our gospel lesson today. The disciples want to know who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. After everything they have seen and heard, after weeks and months of following Jesus around, all of the healings and teachings, the miraculous feedings, and Jesus touching the untouchables, they are concerned about issues of status and favor jockeying for position so in response Jesus motions to a child nearby to come and stand with him and he says truly I tell you unless you change and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me Now, we may be used to airbrushed pictures of Jesus welcoming little children and holding them on his lap. But back then, this would have been both a surprising and threatening image to most people. As one commentator explains, the radicality of Jesus' symbolic prophetic act may be lost on modern Westerners who no longer share the dominant Near Eastern view of children. Even in first century Judaism, children were often regarded as inferior, without status or rights, treated more as property than as persons, and they were never held up as a model for anything. In fact, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright speculates that Jesus probably chose a girl child here because a girl would make with special clarity the point that Jesus was wanting to get into the disciples' minds, that the weakest, most vulnerable, Least significant human being you can think of is the clearest possible signpost to what the kingdom of God will be like. Now Jesus is telling his disciples that they're never going to get anywhere near the kingdom of heaven unless they change and become like this powerless, dependent, vulnerable child on the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. One commentator writes, following Jesus is not about adding on one more worthy cause, but it calls for starting all over. To become like a little child is to humble oneself, giving up all pretensions of self-importance, independence, and self-reliance, and turning in trust to the Heavenly Father. Jesus calls, up to, calls us to give up the very things that we use to ensure our comfort and security so that we can live in to a new reality, the kingdom of heaven on earth. This is not just a social demotion, but a complete change in how you see yourself and the world around you. After giving up any justifications for putting yourself above or better than anyone else, now you can see the world from God's perspective. Now you can see other people including children or slaves or those on the margins as beloved citizens in God's kingdom. As New Testament Professor Douglas Hare writes, to receive is not just to extend hospitality to, but to accept as infinitely valuable. Children have value not because they are potential adults, but because they are already persons whom Jesus champions. To receive them is to receive him. Although the disciples might have been shocked to hear this from Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised, because change is at the core of Jesus' ministry and message. The very first words out of his mouth at the beginning of his ministry were, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent is just a fancy theological way of saying change. It literally means to turn around, to change directions, which is why the Common English Bible chose not to use that baggage-laden word, repent, but to translate it as change your hearts and lives. First and foremost, Jesus calls us to change our hearts and lives, to change our perspective, our worldview, our way of seeing and understanding, loving and living. The kingdom of heaven is not someplace far away, up in the clouds, beyond our earthly life, but right here and now, present within us and among us and all around us. And when Jesus calls us to follow him, he is inviting us to turn around and change directions, away from a world in which everyone wants to have power over everybody else, toward the reality of God's kingdom in our midst, in which all people are inextricably connected, related, and infinitely valuable and worthy of God's love and abundant life. This kind of change will probably require us to change how we live from day to day. Because if all children have infinite value, then it's not okay For so many children to go to bed hungry, sick, homeless, scared, or separated from their families. If all people have infinite value, then it's not okay for a few of us to have so much when so few have so little, so many have so little. It's not okay for some to be treated differently because of their gender or the color of their skin or their social class or their religion or their sexual identity or all the other ways We categorize people. It's not okay to exploit people or the environment in communities or countries where people do not have the political power and resources to speak up and protest. This means that we will have to step out of our comfort zones so that we can listen to and welcome their stories and perspectives, their realities. We may may even have to give up some of our beloved ways of understanding our history and traditions, and then change how we live, both as individuals and as a society, so that others can share in the blessings we so often take for granted. There is no doubt about it, change is hard. As Robin Sharma says, change is hardest at the beginning, messiest in the middle and best at the end. But we have to go through those hard and messy parts in order to get to the good stuff. And we don't just change for the sake of change itself. Some changes are definitely worth resisting and fighting, especially when they impinge on or deprive others of the life that God created us all to live. But as the psalmist proclaims in our first lesson today, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea. The nations may be in an uproar, the kingdoms tottering, but the Lord of hosts is with us. God is our refuge. If the change leads us in the direction of God's kingdom, we place our ultimate trust in the one whose power and presence are assured. Whose love is as solid as a rock. In the words of singer Roseanne Cash, the key to change is to let go of fear. But it's okay, and it's okay to start small. Author Leo Tolstoy also said: true life is lived when tiny changes occur. So this week, I would invite you to start small, but to take a look at the changes that are going on within you and around you, especially the ones that feel uncomfortable and hard. Which of these changes could actually be invitations to see the world as God sees it, always on the move but filled with infinite value? Which might bring you and all of us closer to God's kingdom reality? What will you need to give up or leave behind in order to live into something new? Then, like that tentative toddler, take a small step, and then another, trusting that God will be with you every step of the way. Amen.